So I just got back from vacation. I was gone last week. Where uh, is irrelevant. The only thing that I want to brag about is that it was 80 degrees every day, every day. Not 80, then 35, then 80, then 35, then 80. It is amazing. I'm not saying we should all move, but we should consider it. That's, that's, that's what's going on there. Anyway, um, while I was on vacation, I, I got my, my wife drug me to one of these ridiculous, like, little game show entertainment things. And I hate stuff like that. I just hate it. Some of you guys are with me. Some of you are like, oh, it's the best part. And some of you are like, no, I'm the no person. I don't, I don't like them. Anyway, so they did the, the old, like, the, the married couple game, you know, where they take uh, the spouses out of the room and they ask the questions and they see if your answers match. That, that, they did that, that old game. And so they have the men sitting on stage and they've, They've taken the wives, and I don't know what they do with them. They just throw them out somewhere, and they're gone for a while. They disappear. And they're asking the men these questions, and, you know, they're going to see if their wives will answer the same. And they ask the men, what part of your wife's body would she want to make smaller? All the men immediately just look down because they know they're in trouble there's really no good way to answer this question. And um, they're just struggling. And so you can tell the guy in the, who's going to go first, he doesn't care if he gets it right. He doesn't care if, the, if, if, if he loses the game. It doesn't matter. He just wants to come out of this not in trouble for the rest of the week. So he responds with like something like her toenail. And the other guys are like, good answer, good answer. <laughs> you know, and so it's one of those deals. It goes to the next guy, and the next guy is sitting here, and you could tell earlier, I mean, he, he wants to be honest. He's trying. And so he's got his head down, you know, and he's kind of shaking his head. And he goes, our stomach. And the guy goes, no, no, it has to be just her. Her stomach and he goes I can't I can't hear you what did you say and he's like her stomach and then the announcer like, oh bad answer bad answer you know and everybody in the audience starts booing this poor guy I mean they're booing him and he's like what it's gonna be true it, it's the answer it's true and, I mean, they were so mean to this poor guy. I mean, everybody's booing him. His wife comes out later and is somewhat redemptive because she, in fact, says, my stomach. And as I listen to the crowd boo this guy and cheer the guy who says toenails, which she didn't get because he's just making something up for a safe answer, I, I began to think, why, why do we so oppose reality and truth? Why, why do we find truth so unpleasant? Why do we hide from it? Why are we embarrassed by it? See, we oppose truth because the truth exposes us. We even try to change it. We try to change reality. I remember one time I got, oh man, it might have been, I can't believe I'm going to say this again. It's not in the notes, but it just come to mind and I'm going to go for it. I got in so much trouble one time because I had this person and they were talking to me and they were saying, uh, 
they were explaining how they, they view outward, everyone is the same in terms of outward beauty. And God sees every individual in terms of their outward beauty just the same. And I said, that's not true. And they gasp. I said, like, you ever read the Bible? Like, Sarah is prettier than other people in her outward appearance. The Bible says it. Like, they talk about David being handsome. The, the Bible says it. See, the point isn't that we would change what is outward. You can't make yourself taller or shorter. You can't make yourself necessarily smarter. Or not. You, you, God has made us all differently. The issue isn't that we're different. The issue isn't that. The issue is that we would find our worth and our value in such shallow things. But why would we hide from that? Why would we just try to change the rules? Why would we try to change the reality of such things? Why would we be so embarrassed by it? And I think it's pretty simple. I think reality and sin, I think it exposes I'm sorry, reality and truth exposes our sin. It exposes our insecurity. It exposes our dependence, our need. It exposes us, our weakness, our pride. That we would take great pride in being this, whatever this is. See, the truth shames us. It shames us. It's also the very thing that leads us to repentance and worship. But when we get the chance, we're going to try to figure out a different solution other than repentance, other than acknowledging it. Most of the time, we just try to ignore it, right? We, We try to come up with things like toenails. We don't speak of it. We don't share it with one another. Matter of fact, we just go around, as Mike said, and we pretend that everything's good. But everything is not good we know that right let's let's be real the church gathering when the church gathers together it can be one of the fakest settings in the world you know that right I mean that's that's the dad who I mean he's frustrated and he's yelling at his wife and his kids and they're getting in the minivan you know and he's using words he would never say in church and they're so mad and they're there and they walk into church and he sees somebody and all of a sudden it's like hey how are you doing and the guy who's coming in just like him responds back in his telephone voice man I'm good how are you and neither of them are good they're stressed they're weighed down they're fighting they're just not good but they say they're good you go to your study group and somebody says how can I pray for you you think for a second, and you respond, my, my, my great Aunt Thelma, she's 105, and she's feeling a little weak this, 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 these last few days. Would you pray for her? Meanwhile, your marriage is falling apart. You don't talk to your spouse. There's huge division, but the prayer request we're going to pray for and we're going to own is that our 105-year-old great aunt is feeling a little weak. That's so fake. Wait, you leave the service and you get on Facebook and Twitter and you're like, hashtag blessed. But the truth is you're so depressed and you're fighting. You go to your life group and someone asks you, what is God teaching you? What's God teaching you? 
and you respond with the regurgitated sermon from Sunday, whatever you can remember, and you kind of go on about that like you do every week because you're not going to be real enough to say, you know what, I haven't picked up my Bible and studied it in months and years. If ever, I need help, I need accountability because it's easier just to regurgitate what you just heard in church. See, those things shame us. We want to ignore it. We want to pretend that that's not the reality. And I'm not saying to us that we need to be an emotional volcano. Lord, please, no emotional volcano. Erupting your lava all over the place. That's not being real. That's just being drama. It's just being drama. Being real is a meditative, listen, a reasoned response aimed at discovering truth. At dealing with those realities that we wish we could ignore. See, this morning, churches all across our country are going to gather together and we're going to sing songs of praise, happy songs. We'll preach, you know, Disney sermons with happily ever after endings all the time. And we'll focus just on the positive things and we'll set aside the fact that in our churches, that among you right now, there are hurting people. People who are filled with sorrow. People who are in the middle of major crisis. People who are lonely. Listen, church, this is one reason why a middle class kind of church, a somewhat affluent church, will struggle to reach a less affluent people. It is because in our kind of middle class affluency, we can fake it. We can pretend, we can have an illusion of independence, we can hide our hurt and our sorrow. It's not so easy when you don't have such privilege. And so when we reach out and we bring them in and they come here and their life is hurting and it's messy and it's outward, it's visible, it's obvious, and they walk in and they see you and they say, how are you doing? You're like, oh, I'm good, hashtag blessed. They go, man, I, I don't fit in here. I'm not, I'm not like them. I got real problems. They got it together, and I obviously don't. We feel the loneliness in that. See, we gather and we pretend. Listen, we do not pretend that God is good. We know he's good. We pretend that we're good. We don't pretend that God is in control. We know he is in control. We pretend that we are. We don't pretend that every good gift comes from God. We know it all comes from him. We pretend we're content with what we have when we're not. See, we go around and we outwardly affirm one another in this pretend kind of fake setting with our forced fake smiles. Meanwhile, inside, inwardly, we withdraw from authentic church. We've got to ask ourselves, deep from within that culture. Is that what Christianity looks like? Is that what it's supposed to be? Pretend people, ignoring the present, only in hope and celebration of what is to come. Is, is that what it's supposed to be? It's not what we see in Scripture. It's just not. See, when we open the pages of Scripture, we see God's people 
both personally and congregationally, in other words, as an individual and as a group gathered together, we see them bluntly real. They don't avoid their hurt or their sorrow or their loneliness or their crisis. They bring it before one God and two, the church. They bring it before the Lord. They bring it before the church. And it's what we call lament. It's what we call lament. An authentic longing for God from a place of sorrow and crisis. One third of the Psalms are laments. They're this. From frustration and hurt and deep desperation, a crying out to the Lord. Saying, it is not well with me. I know I'm supposed to sing it is well. But I just lost my kids and it's not well with me today. I hurt. I hurt. A third of the psalms are that. More than our psalms of praise. More than our psalms of thanksgiving. More than our psalms of reflections. Lament. Now church, this is a good time, I think, to remind us that when we study the Psalms, we're really looking at poetic literature. We're looking at songs and poems and pleas of passion. They're descriptive. And even in our preaching at, at Tri-Cities Baptist Church, what we do the majority of the time, the vast majority of the time, is we take the text, we take Scripture line by line, and we teach it and we break it down as it should be. But I, I, I want to make sure we understand something. The line finds its context in the comprehensive revelation of all of Scripture. Each line is defined by the whole. The line does not stand apart by itself. It is given context and meaning by the full counsel of Scripture. That, that's part of why, for example, in Acts 2, Peter says, repent and be baptized to be saved. Well, we don't believe you have to be baptized to be saved. It's not a saving act. If all we had was that one verse, we would believe it. But that one verse gets its definition within the full counsel of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Sometimes when we study, we've got to step back and figure out what is the comprehensive context. And that's really true when we see the Psalms. Because context defines what is literal. See, in East Tennessee, we like to, we, we like to say, we like to kind of celebrate the simple things. We do. We just do. You know, like the Bible says it, so that settles it. And that, that's true, right? But if we unpack that, if I even ask you, do you believe the Bible is literal, we, we, most of you are going to raise your hand and say, yes, and we should. And so, like, for example, if I read from you from Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, and I say, and he called to him, Jesus called to him, his 12 disciples. And I ask you, how many disciples did Jesus call to him? You're going to say 12, because the Bible says 12, right? And we're going to say, I, I believe the Bible, it's literal, it says 12, so it must be 12. But let's go into the Psalms for a minute. In Psalm 50, verse 10, the psalmist writes, God owns the cattle 
on a thousand hills. How many hills of cattle does God own? <laughs> see? See what happened there? Like, you're not saying a thousand. And if it is a thousand, which thousand? And who owns the cattle on the other hills? Right? So what happens is you have to understand in the poetic context of Scripture, within the comprehensive understanding of the full revelation of God, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills means God owns all the cattle. All of them. All of them. But in our poetic reading in the Psalms, our understanding is shaped by the whole. Does that make sense? You follow me? And so I know that's a quick little Bible lesson, but I want you to get that because in the next few weeks as we look at lament, especially the next two, we're going to take a more comprehensive look and an idea and a general truth that's revealed to us through Scripture that we don't practice very much, individually or corporately in the church. And these general truths, these descriptions, they're not just prescribed promises. You don't see this pattern of lament and says, this is how you lament, thou shalt. That's not there. But what we see is a third of the Psalms, we see laments in the New Testament, we, we see these kind of broken ideas and expressed emotions throughout the scriptures, and they're there because they have a divinely established purpose. They have a point. They're teaching us something. They're shaping our worldview and calling us to deal with reality, not ignore it or pretend it's not present. And they're also telling us that to do so can be an act of worship. It's healthy, not just for us, but it can be a cry out of worship to the Lord. And so I, I thought about how to best begin and jump in, and I, I decided that we're just going to read, and we're going to read quite a bit. And I don't, know if we, I don't know if we've ever read this much in just one service in one setting, but I'm going to read through a few of these Psalms of Lament. And here's why I'm choosing to do this this way. You're going to have to kind of fight through the tension of, of reading. And so, again, read along, focus, make yourself work at it for just a moment. Here's why we're doing it this way. It's a different culture. We don't do this. Again, our tendency is to ignore and to pretend. And just like if you were going to learn another language or another culture, the best way I know to do that is to dump you in the culture, to immerse you in that culture. And so as we just read through these, I want you to hear the psalmist as they lament. And I want you to think about what it's calling us to do as a church and as a believer. And we're just going to kind of jump around and, and just read through a few. Let's, let's start in Psalm 13, verse 1. How long... O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Have you ever felt forgotten? Have, seriously, think about it. Have, have you ever felt like this God's forgotten you? He's just hidden from you? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
Have you ever felt like you always lose? Your enemy always gets the best of you. Verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Let's go to Psalm 44. We'll pick up in verse 22. Psalmist writes out, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Have you ever felt like God's just not paying attention? Because surely if he were paying attention this wouldn't be happening Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our bellies cling to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Mike read Psalm 69 earlier. Let's read it again. Verse 1. Listen to the desperation. Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Have you ever felt overwhelmed, depressed? From all our studies that we know, we are the most depressed generation that has ever been. We fight the feeling of being overwhelmed, of feeling neck deep in the mire and the muck. I am weary, verse 3, with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Have you ever prayed? Do you feel like you couldn't pray anymore? Have you ever been so desperate in prayer and longing that your throat is parched from crying out to the Lord? Verse 4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who destroy me who attack me with lies. Have you ever been lied about? Honest confession, that probably bugs me more than anything else, is to not be understood or to be lied about. It just, I don't know why, but it hurts me so much. You ever just been lied about? What I did not steal must I now restore? Verse 5, oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Oh Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, oh God of Israel. Have you ever felt like you're just hurting everyone around you? Like you're just, a, you're just messed up? So broken that everything around you and everything you touch, you just seem to mess up. 
Psalm 123, verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease. Of the contempt of the proud. Have you ever been abused and just feel like you can't take it anymore? It's enough. Psalm 89, we'll pick up in verse 49. I challenge you to go back and read these in the fullness of of the entire psalm later this week. I hope you're using the reading plan. The word is so good, so powerful. Verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? which by your faithfulness you swore to David. By the way, have you ever felt abandoned like God loved them more than you? God, I see what you're doing over here in them. Why why not in me? Verse 50, remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. With which your enemies mock, O Lord. With which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Psalm 79. Pick up in verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. There was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors. Mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Have you ever felt like God's just angry with you? You're constantly under his wrath. See, there's a general pattern when you look through these psalms of lament. There's an address at the beginning, um, oh Lord, we heard that a lot when we picked up in verse 1. Oh Lord, we, we, we don't just lament to just complain to the air, right? We are addressing someone. 
cry out to the Lord. Then there's a petition. There's a petition. It's, it's a call of distress. Sometimes it's just a complaint. They hate me without cause, the psalmist said. And then third, there's usually at the end a moment of assurance in which the psalmist acknowledges that God has heard his lament. Blessed be the Lord. Amen. We heard this at the end. But even this is not always true. In Psalm 88, for example, we have an address, we have a call of distress, and then it just ends in distress. It just ends. There's no, but blessed are you, O Lord. There's, no, there's none of that. It just ends. Let's kind of just summarize. Verse 1, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. So let's just skip down to verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. So let's look at these last four verses. It continues this tone. We get to verse 15. This is the last four verses of the chapter. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused, this is the last sentence. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Have you ever felt like God has taken the people and the relationships closest to you? Did those people, maybe your spouse, maybe your child, maybe your best friend, has rejected you? Walked away. That's how it ends. God, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Listen, this is real. This is real. This isn't pretend. It's not ignoring that these things don't happen. It's real. And if there is anything I can encourage you with this morning, hear this. If you're here and you are hurting, you are filled with sorrow, you are lonely, you are in crisis, listen, you have a voice. You are not an outcast. You belong in the church. And if the church makes you feel anything less, the truth is the church is wrong. You have a place here. We deal with these things together. Our big truth this morning is this, that gospel-centered lament is God-honoring worship and soul-shaping dialogue. It has a place in our lives and it has a place in worship. It has from the beginning and it will 
until the Lord glorifies us and makes all things new. From the beginning of sin and its effect on us until we are glorified, we will lament what is present and broken in us and the world around us. And doing so in an authentic longing for God is a pure act of worship. So in the few minutes we have left, some general observations that we'll come back next week and begin to unpack. First, gospel-centered lament is an authentic longing for God from a place of sorrow and crisis. When we say gospel-centered, here's what we mean. It's the recognition there is one sovereign God who we hope and trust in from the midst of our crisis and our lament. Did you notice no one, no one time in all those psalms did it blame other things? All of this was under God's control. He could change it if he wants to. It's addressed to him. It's calling for him to change it. And again and again, you're going to see words like you caused, you allowed. Wake up because you can do something. Gospel-centered means there is one sovereign God who we can turn to with all of our hope and all of our trust, no matter what is going on around us. That's why we say there is an authentic longing for God. If that's not present, all you're doing is just complaining. It's just complaint to the wind. Authentic longing for God. Not just complaining, it's not just suffering. Gospel centered lament, listen, is not about the problem. It's about where you take your problem. Gospel centered lament is not measured by where your sorrow or your crisis has taken you, rather, where you have taken it. Gospel centered lament is worship, it's real worship. I mean, think about it, guys. What worship does man have? More pure than to cry out, oh Lord, have mercy on me. My life is a mess. Everything around me is broken. I hurt, I suffer, and I can do nothing apart from you. Save me. What greater act of the acknowledgement of who God is in worship than that? That is gospel worship. That is what we do in the moment of salvation. That is how we are saved when we come to know God. As one who loved us enough to send his son so that we might have hope that if we would cry out and acknowledge that everything in our life is broken and messy, if we would be real and honest enough to know we can't save ourselves and to cry out to him and say, save me, Jesus. Son of God, who died in my place, save me. What greater act of worship than is that? It's not just bad for us when we ignore reality. It's not just harmful for us. It robs God of authentic, pure worship when you act like you're good. You're stealing from him what is his. His worship is not just about acknowledging who he is. It's also about acknowledging who we are and our dependence and need on him. Second, gospel-centered lament is practiced personally as a believer and congregationally as God's family. Quickly, 
Personally, the Bible invites you to worship through lament. Listen, you're not going to fake it with God. You're not going to stand in front of God and go, um, my toenails. God knows you want it to be your stomach. Don't lie. Who are you kidding? God knows you've got bigger problems than your 105-year-old Aunt Thelma who's feeling a little weak. Pray for Aunt Thelma, but be real too. You're not going to hide that stuff from the Lord. It's part of worship. Go to him. Stop speaking kind of Christianese. Be real and talk to God. Second, congregationally. By the way, all these psalms are public. They're in the Bible. They came together. They recited them together. They read them together. They shared them. And listen, that doesn't just mean with your BFF, right? If the whole church is there together, let's just be real. Not everybody in the whole assembly is like BFF with one another. You know what that means? That means they're choosing vulnerability with the entire body. Because they recognize more important than their just relational connection is the God-given giftedness to the whole body when the whole body is able to speak in and bear one another's burdens. Congregationally, the Bible invites us to lament together. It's not just about making us feel better or making even someone from the outside feel better, especially if that means avoiding what's real. Worship is acknowledging a God big enough to take our crisis, to take our sorrow, to take our hurt. It's one reason sin is destroying our relationships. They're just built on pretend. Stop pretending. Be real. Talk to one another. May our church be a church that longs for God together with those who find themselves in a place of shared sorrow in crisis. Third, this is kind of part A and part B, gospel-centered lament acknowledges the brokenness of our current reality. We are still impacted by sin. That's a current reality. We still suffer its effects, each one of us, even those of us who are in Christ. It is the reality of where we're at. It is also gospel-centered lament that desires the glory of God's soon-to-be new creation. As a believer, we recognize more than anyone, it's not supposed to be this way. It's broken. It's not just life. It's broken. And there is a desire for us for it to be made new. And so quickly, a couple of big ideas, applications for you to go, and we'll, we'll touch on these again next week. Just a quick overview. Gospel-centered lament demands vulnerability. Vulnerability, listen, it's not pretty, it's desperate. It's not just drama, it's humbly longing to discover and be transformed. It's speaking one's deep lament, which is so soul-bearing. It's facing truth, not ignoring it. Listen, it's seeking a few things. Here they are, healing. It's hard to admit you're hurting. It exposes our weakness. But it seeks healing. Second, vulnerability seeks help. It's hard to admit you need help. It exposes our pride. It goes against what a lot of us have been taught. And third, it's seeking transformation or correction. And that's certainly hard to acknowledge because that means we must acknowledge that we, we've been wrong. 
We need correction. It means admitting our customs have been insufficient. Our traditions have been insufficient. It means admitting sometimes that you're just ignorant. What what I mean by that? You don't even know what you don't know. Lord, I have no idea. Your ways are beyond my ways, but this hurts. Gospel-centered lament demands vulnerability. If you're missing in the regular routine of your life, good gospel-centered lament, chances are it's because you're not choosing vulnerability. Second, gospel-centered lament demands authentic dialogue. We've forgotten how to dialogue. Listen, dialogue, here's a quick definition. A conversation between two or more people to resolve a problem. Monologue is this. A speech given by one person to be received. See, we've forgotten how to dialogue. Instead, we just sit there and exchange monologue. And it's all around us. It's, a, it, it's not just a social problem that we see in our government and our leaders and everybody just polarizes and just throws out their things. No, I'm not talking about just that. Listen, this is a sin problem with effects on our discipleship and growth. See, because learning usually requires repeated dialogue. I'm going to take us just a a, a minute longer to give you this illustration, but I think it's important. It helps validate life groups and how we interact in study groups. Listen, let's say there's somebody out here, Bob. Bob decides he's going to come up, and Bob has a real problem with something that's happening in the church. He thinks that we should do this instead of that, right? So Bob sets up a meeting. He comes to meet with their elders, and I'm proud of Bob because most people in the church don't do that. They just talk amongst themselves. Our elders are available. If you got something, come talk to us. But Bob sets up a meeting. He comes and talks, and he says, guys, listen, this thing that you've been doing for the last 10 years, the things that you're saying, this view of Scripture, I think it's wrong. Here's why. He goes on and he explains the elders have done that for 10 years. They've talked about it. They've interacted about it. And Bob comes in and he sits down in 30 minutes and he explains why he thinks it's wrong. What do you think the chances are in that one moment, even if Bob is right, all nine of our elders going, hmm, you're right, Bob. That's it. Makes sense to me. I just didn't get it for the last 10 years, but now I get it. 30 minutes. I'm good. Let's for a moment say Bob's wrong. And the elders come back and they explain to him. They open up scripture. They explain why. You think Bob goes, oh, I get it now. It's okay. I got it. Your 30-minute explanation back, I'm good. Let's just be honest. Do you learn that way? Did somebody teach you in school through one 30-minute monologue and you're just good? We don't learn that way. Discipleship doesn't work that way. And when we walk away from dialogue, when we walk away from conversation, and we just give our monologue presentation, and we just think it's going to work, and then when it doesn't, we're like, those people. Don't act like you don't do that. We all do that. If we would stop walking away from those people, but we would stay engaged and have a conversation, we might actually get to lament. Church, if you're hurting If you're filled with sorrow, if you're in a season of crisis, first, you're not alone. You're not alone. God has given you the church. 
And he's welcomed you to bring your problems to him. Second, God is big enough to handle your problem. I'm going to ask the team to come on up. And as they prepare to lead us in a time of response, this is what I want you to hear. God is big enough to handle your problem. I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying he's necessarily going to fix your problem. I'm telling you, you're not going to offend him by pretending you don't have a problem. He's big enough to handle your sincerity and your problem. Third, God's family is messy. We know that we're messy. But we are designed and called to lament with you. Fourth, none of this happens if we don't choose vulnerability and dialogue with one another. Talk to one another. It's why we have something like Life Group and why we try to facilitate that for every person in our church. Because we've got to talk to one another. We've got to be able to come together, be real, and acknowledge, man, my marriage is hurting. I can't sing it as well. I just lost my child. I just went through the miscarriage, and I hurt, and I just, it, it, I hurt. Church, God invites you to lament. To him, one-on-one in your life, to cry out to him. But listen, he has also given us one another. And I'm going to ask you to apply that this week. First, we're going to just in a moment stand and we're going to sing. And I'm just going to ask you, as you sing, to pray. And just be real. If you're hurt, if you're in crisis, if it's all broken, go to him. Cry out to him. And just you and him, just be real. Dialogue. Address him. Give your petition, your call of distress. And be assured that if you are a child of God, he hears you. Second, the end of our service, right out those doors, there's a prayer room. There's people you could talk to. Some of you are in life groups. There's people you can talk to this week. Choose vulnerability. Don't just ask prayer for Thelma. Choose vulnerability with your church. Let them in. Let them lament with you. Listen, let them worship with you in lament. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good. You are worthy of all of our praise, even when our praise and our worship is filled with sorrow and crisis. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who though may be embarrassed by reality and truth of our circumstance as it exposes us, may we be a people that worships you purely and cries out for your help, that acknowledges that you are bigger than our hurt, 
you are bigger than our crisis, that you love us more than we can comprehend and understand, and that you have given us brothers and sisters, that you have given us a family, so that we do not mourn the present circumstances of the day by ourselves. God, give us the faithfulness and the wisdom to worship you through lament. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.